the National Archives podcast series, Out of the Way of Mischief, the experiences of 19th and early 20th century schoolchildren, presented by Bryony Paxson. This event was recorded live on the 22nd of September 2011 at the National Archives queue. The title for this talk comes from a statement by Henry Rogers, an official at the Office of the Inspector of Reformatory and Industrial Schools at the Home Office. Writing in 1884, he criticises the actions of local officials in sending deprived children to treasury-funded reformatory schools rather than provide appropriate care locally. While he is being sarcastic, his words reflect contemporary thinking about problem children. It costs the county so little, and it is so cheap, advisable and convenient to get the boy out of the way. He is a bad boy, and he will be out of the way of mischief at the reformatory school. Industrial and reformatory schools were indeed intended to keep children out of mischief, to prevent those considered at risk of developing into the next generation of adult criminals from doing so. From the late 18th century, charities and benevolent individuals had led the way in setting up institutions which aimed to turn children away from crime and reform them through discipline, work, religious training and education. By the mid-19th century, this work was considered an essential service in helping to maintain law and order. From 1854, the Home Office and the Treasury became involved in the inspection and funding of reformatory and industrial schools, although the institutions remained largely private. It had become, quote, the bounden duty, as well as the obvious policy of the state, to train pauper, insubordinate and perverted children to be good and self-supporting citizens, instead of leaving them to become adult criminals. The children concerned were often the offspring of convicted parents, or brought up in the urban poverty that bred much of the crime of 19th century England. Children identified as vagrant, neglected, disorderly, in danger of corruption, or in the case of reformatory schools already convicted of an offence, were taken out of their home environment and detained until they were 16. During this period, they would receive training for a trade and the sort of discipline and moral instruction it was feared they did not receive at home. This removal from the polluting influence of home was one of the key aspects of reformatory and industrial schools, which were often positioned in rural areas, far from the towns and cities from which many of their pupils came. Children were placed away from home in order to break these corrupting ties and allow the work of the school to take effect without outside interference. We're going to look at sources at the National Archives which help us to build up a picture of how children moved through this system and what the schools were like. The documents we will look at go up to the early 1920s when the system came to be replaced with boar stools and special schools. We will draw on the records of a number of different series, the Home Office records, Ministry of Health, Metropolitan Police, Prison Commission and Treasury records. The independent nature of many schools meant that they came in different shapes and sizes. These photos come from one of three volumes of photographs in series MH102 and they show four different institutions. In the top left is Walsham Le Willows, a rural industrial school in Suffolk. Below it is Essex Reformatory School near Chelmsford. In the top right is Liverpool, relatively unusual because of its town location. And in the bottom right is the Mars Industrial Training Ship. Industrial and reformatory schools were similar and are often dealt with together, but there were differences which we need to keep in mind. Industrial schools were preventative. They took children younger than 14 
who were vagrant, neglected, disorderly, or at danger of being corrupted. These were not children convicted of a crime, although they may have been charged with one. Reformatories were corrective. They detained children under 16 convicted of a criminal offence. They were more punitive, and children usually spent some time in prison before entering a reformatory. While some pupils were voluntary cases placed in schools by charities, most were sent to an industrial or reformatory school by magistrates, or from the 1870s by a local school board. Children were detained under various industrial school and reformatory acts, and legislation passed throughout the second half of the 19th century increased the pool of children eligible for detention in these schools. I will now explore a number of individual cases using sources from the Home Office, Metropolitan Police Files and Prison Commission records, which illustrate the different journeys that children took to come into these schools. Our first source will be HO349, which contains logbooks, registers and miscellaneous records of some reformatories and their successors. The schoolmaster or matron was obliged to keep a register of admissions and discharges which would provide details about a child's background, detention, previous character and parents. Ordinarily, this sort of material ends up in a local record office. However, we have records for a number of institutions here, including returns of children at Stockport Industrial School. Amanda Brindley was eight when she was detained in Stockport Industrial School in 1874 for being beyond control. Her notes state that her father is dead and her mother an inmate of Macclesfield Lunatic Asylum. Her case notes state, The girl was brought up by her older brother and sister. She took to pilfering and staying away from her home. Alfred, aged 11, and his brother John, aged 7, were admitted in April 1878 for stealing a shawl. We know from the register that Alfred had already committed several petty thefts. It is not unusual to find siblings taken into care together, although brothers and sisters may end up in different institutions. Robert Wright, aged 10, and his brother Benjamin, aged 9, were charged with begging and sent to Stockport in 1875. The register notes that on admission, both boys were filthy, their bodies covered with vermin. Their parents live in Stockport, so they are local boys, but, quote, sadly neglected by drunken and indolent parents. These children reflect the sorts of cases industrial schools were intended to look after, vagrant, destitute and disorderly, and the registers are fascinating if very sad records of their pupils. An amendment to the Industrial Schools Act 1880 allowed for children living with prostitutes or frequenting their company to be admitted into industrial schools for their own protection, to be removed from what the Act called the contaminating influences of depraved and disorderly persons. School boards and concerned individuals brought such cases before the magistrates and the police were brought in to gather supporting evidence. The National Archives holds records of the Metropolitan Police and correspondence in MEPO 2 reveals their role in this and other aspects of the industrial school and reformatory system, for example in stopping and detaining children, chaperoning them to magistrates' courts and escorting them to the schools. MEPO 2 Police 355 contains a report by an industrial schools officer at the London School Board regarding the case of Flora Levy, aged 12, and her younger siblings, aged 4 and 2. His report, dated 1901, describes the family's living conditions and the influences they are exposed to. The children, with their father Solomon and stepmother Frida, live in one room described as poor and filthy dirty in Hare Street, Bethnal Green, a desperately poor part of London at this time. The family's landlord has alleged that Frieda is a prostitute. 
who brings home strange men and girls of bad character. He reports that Flora frequently witnesses her stepmother's acts and that, quote, the alleged stepmother, Mrs. Levy, openly states that when Flora is a little older, she will be able to get a few pounds from a man to let him have the first of her. The police were tasked with observing Frida for a number of months to gather sufficient evidence for her to be proved a prostitute and for Flora to be removed from the home. The document contains notes of these investigations, and a few months later, enough evidence had been gathered and Flora was sent to an industrial school. As I mentioned before, children sent to reformatories had usually been convicted of a crime, and they would have spent some time in prison before as a punishment. As such, prison records can provide useful information for these children, possibly including a photograph. Prison records can be patchy, and because they are listed by prison name and then by year, a search for an individual may take some time. A small exception, however, are the prisoner photograph albums for Wandsworth Prison in PCOM 2. These have been catalogued and are available to search via our Documents Online site. Photograph albums were used because taking a photo of a prisoner made it easier to identify re-offenders or those using an alias. Catherine Still is one of the children in Wandsworth Prison in 1873. She is 14. She has been convicted of stealing six chemises and is being held for a month's hard labour before heading on to the Surrey Girls Reformatory School at Clapham. The form provides a fair amount of information about Catherine, her age, place of birth, a physical description and her last known address, which is sadly none in her case. Had she been convicted before, these previous convictions would also be noted. William was only 12 when he was convicted at Kingston Borough Sessions of stealing nine shillings and sixpence in 1873. That's about £20 now. He was a long way from his home address in Brighton and was to spend six weeks in Wandsworth Prison before being sent to Redhill Reformatory School in Surrey for four years. Catherine and William are fairly typical of the children in these records, children who were very poor and who had stolen items worth only a small amount or who had absconded from an industrial school. We've looked at a number of sources providing information on the admission of children to these schools, but of course the story doesn't end there, and the Home Office correspondents in series HO45 and HO144 hold a wealth of material on these institutions and life within them. The Home Office oversaw many areas of public administration, from criminal justice to the control of explosives, from charities to fire services, and to cope with its growing correspondence it created a central registry system. These records may not sound very interesting, but they're useful because only a sample of the correspondence that originally came into the Home Office survives, so the registers can confirm the existence of papers we no longer have. For example, the registers provide clues to the extensive correspondence of the Office of the Inspector of Industrial Schools and Reformatories. References can be found to correspondence regarding individual pupils and schools, as well as border policy issues. This image is from the subject register for reformatories and shows one week in March 1871. All of the entries with stars next to them highlight letters referring to individual pupils. So even from this small snapshot, you can see that the Home Office was dealing with cases on a quite detailed individual basis. While much of the incoming correspondence has not survived, it is possible to trace some outgoing responses in record series HO137. This series contains the reformatory's entry books for the period 1873 to 1909. Entry books contain copies of outgoing correspondence from the department. The series is arranged by year and there are indexes in each volume. Much of this correspondence relates to the transfer, licensing out and discharge of pupils. 
The index at the back of the volume reveals a large number of pupils transferring between schools. While the correspondence may not always survive, the index alone tells you which institutions pupils were moving between, and so they're useful in themselves. Here we can see girls being moved en masse from a school in West Chelsea to another in Parsons Green. One of the things I found surprising about these records is the amount of correspondence that took place between parents and the Home Office. The cases we have seen and contemporary debate would suggest that the parents of industrial and reformatory school children were of a low class, possibly criminal, and probably neglectful of their children. In HO46 and HO137, we find evidence of parents requesting information about their children, their well-being, treatment and release. It is useful to remember that while children could receive visits every two to three months, many were deliberately sent far away from home and came from families so poor that they would be unlikely to be able to visit anyway. This image is from HO46, piece 98, and records a letter coming into the Home Office on the 6th of March 1890 regarding a boy called Arthur Leahy. He was held in the Berlin Castle Reformatory. Like much of the correspondence registered in HO46, the letter no longer survives. However, the HO137 for the same year contains a copy of the response sent to Mrs Leahy, informing her that there are not sufficient grounds to discharge her son, but that Arthur has been let out on licence and his health is reported to be good. This is just one of many similar letters, and if you're looking for information about a particular pupil or are interested in the treatment and movement of such children, these are very useful sources which are very easy to use. Not all schools provided long-term residential care. Following the Elementary Education Act of 1876, school boards could set up day industrial schools and truant schools for children who required a less intensive, shorter detention. Truant schools were residential schools for boys who would stay for a month's strict discipline before returning to ordinary school. Day industrial schools were mixed and catered for children whose non-attendance at school was caused by the carelessness or other faults of their parents. The schools were placed in the heart of the communities they served and would detain a child for a period up to six months. Children would attend from early morning until six in the evening, receive full-time elementary education and take one or more meals a day at the school. The schools were designed to prevent unnecessary confinement in a residential school and also ensure regular attendance. In 1887, Manchester School Board looked to establish a day industrial school for 300 boys and girls. Correspondence regarding the school is in HO45. The school board felt that many of the children they admitted to residential industrial schools could be dealt with in a day school, which would mean shorter detention and less expense. A Home Office official was sent to report on the plans and noted, quote, There are a large number of children in the Manchester streets, reckless and vagabond, who attend no school at all and cannot, owing to bad habits, extreme poverty, and inability of parents to pay school fees be brought into the ordinary elementary school and altogether need some agency like that of the day industrial school. Our next example is the Farmhouse Home for Girls, later the Princess Mary Village Home School. Correspondence regarding this school is also in HO45 and it provides a useful illustration of how the industrial and reformatory school system evolved, often from small charitable endeavours into larger institutions. The school was founded by Susanna Meredith of the Discharged Female Prisoners Aid Society and applied for certification in 1870. At that time, the school was small, holding only 15 children, named to protect and train girls younger than six whose mothers were repeatedly convicted. Before a school could receive a government grant, 
it would have to be inspected by a Home Office inspector and certified as suitable. The reports of these inspections can be useful in describing what the institutions were like. An 1871 inspection of this school describes a small, double-fronted cottage with a kitchen garden. The school looked to expand very quickly, however, and in February 1872, Mrs Meredith applies for another certificate when the school is renamed the Princess Mary's Village Home for Girls, to be run on what she calls the family system. Now the school would have 20 cottages, each holding 10 to 20 girls, with a so-called mother in charge of each cottage. The system was designed to separate older and more delinquent girls from their younger, more innocent schoolmates. As this list of pupils shows, some of these girls could be very young. These girls are all four. The structure reflects a growing belief in the importance of more personal care for children. It was felt that in many cases, parental neglect was behind their committal and the 1884 Royal Commission on Reformatories and Industrial Schools, papers of which are in T1, demanded that this neglect be repaired by schools and their teachers. Small schools were recommended, quote, so that each boy or girl may receive as much personal care and interest as can be given in an institution which is necessarily an imperfect substitute for home. The correspondence file for the school also provides glimpses of the pupils' day-to-day -day life, including details of the dietary, timetable and discipline. As with many industrial and reformatory schools, discipline was largely based on a reward system where one would be awarded stars or uh, privileges for good behaviour and then these could be taken away as a punishment. It was only for extreme cases of indiscipline that corporal punishment was permitted and alternatives like solitary confinement and this reward system were suggested instead. This reflects a general policy which avoided the physical punishment of girls. Boys were less fortunate, but Home Office regulations aimed to prevent mistreatment. All punishments should be registered in a book, which was on open display, and where abuse was suspected, formal inquiries took place. Also of interest is the girls' timetable. The pupils followed a mixed course of instruction, with industrial training and the elementary education which any school child would receive. Typically for girls, industrial training meant needlework, laundry and dressmaking, preparing them for their likely futures as domestic servants. Home Office regulations recommended pupils spend three hours a day on their education, focusing on reading, spelling, writing and ciphering, and where possible classes in subjects like history, geography and social economy. Religious instruction was also provided in line with the school's denomination. The 1884 Royal Commission spelled out the need to educate these children properly. If they are not to be under heavy disadvantages as compared with their competitors in afterlife, they should receive an elementary education similar and not inferior to that which other children receive. In addition, the children would receive industrial training, which would provide skills they could use in future employment. As we have seen, girls were usually trained in preparation for domestic service, but there was a little more variety for boys so their training could specialise in trades such as farming, cobbling, tailoring, carpentry and military training. Children were to be occupied for at least six hours a day, with another two hours set aside for recreation and exercise. Some of this exercise may take the form of drill, which was considered particularly useful for boys in instilling discipline. Indeed, drill inspection by public officials and displays at public open days allowed the school to demonstrate its reforming power. Many industrial and reformatory schools also cultivated military-style brass bands. The photograph albums in MH102 are littered with images of bands proudly displaying their uniforms. Alongside drill practice, 
These bands helped to instill discipline and provided a good niche area of training, preparing boys for careers as regimental musicians. We're now going to have a closer look at the material in MH102, in particular regarding Harborne Industrial School for Boys. MH102 contains policy files for the Home Office Children's Department, covering all aspects of child detention in remand homes, industrial and approved schools. The file for Harborne School focuses on the quality of education and the health of the boys. In 1913, the school was called to account for 10 years of deteriorating educational and teaching standards. The 1910 inspection report gives a good indication of the problems. The report criticises inadequate teaching facilities, with three classes using only one room for lessons, with curtains separating the different classes. School reports are useful in discovering more about an institution, providing information regarding the standard of teaching, industrial training and the health of the children. The health of pupils was indeed taken seriously by schools and the Home Office. Not only would sickly children be less able to fully benefit from residential schooling, which let's remember was expensive, but it was also not unknown for parents to bring charges of neglect or ill usage against a school if their child was unwell. In 1904, concerns about the health of its pupils had prompted the school to move from its original location in central Birmingham. Correspondence notes that a larger number of weedy-looking boys than in most industrial schools were in the school, with cases of spinal curvature and scrofula frequently reported. A report on the school noted, quote, It is well known that fresh, pure air is essential to the well-being of young life and to the building up of a healthy and vigorous constitution, and therefore I cannot but conclude that the lack of that constituent is the cause of the continued debility amongst the boys. The Gem Street site does indeed sound unpromising, the same report notes that it was hemmed in by a smelting furnace, a butcher's and a rag-and-bone warehouse. While the outdoor life of a training ship may sound like a healthier environment, these too had their problems. Training ships were a highly specialised branch of the reformatory and industrial school system. Using old navy vessels moored permanently off the coast, boys were taught naval skills to prepare them for sea service. These schools were seen to have certain advantages over conventional land schools, with stricter discipline and constant supervision. Boys were always together on board ship and supervised by a large staff, many of whom had naval experience. The ships also offered a more thorough separation from the outside world and a complete change of scenery and companions. Despite these perceived advantages, life on board training ships was harsh. In 1917, there was an inquiry into the unusually high death and sick rates on the Mount Edgecombe training ship and the records of this inquiry are in HO45. Sick rates on the Mount Edgecombe were three times higher than that of most industrial schools, and the inquiry concluded that one of the reasons was that the child were poorly selected and, quote, too imperfect in physique for its vigorous life. The inquiry reported that the boys on this ship compare very unfavourably in development, mental condition and nutrition with those on other ships and in land industrial schools. Many boys were undersized or suffered from septic sores or chronic ulcers, conditions which would, ironically, cause them to be rejected from the Royal Navy or Merchant Marine anyway. Nonetheless, the training ship remained a popular type of reformatory school as it was seen to provide a clear employment route. Having spoken in general terms about the life of these schools, I now want to look at the process of licensing out, which is when pupils were sent out to work while still under the school's supervision to gain some experience of work and of independence. The receipt of wages while on licence was thought to have an important psychological effect on a child. With reference to girls, a Home Office report of 1894 notes, 
When allowed to receive her wages with her own hand, she sees in it a mark of confidence and an assurance that she has left behind the life of compulsory detention in an industrial school and has started on a new life in which she will take her place amongst other girls as a free, useful and respectable member of the community. This was the final stage in a child's preparation for discharge and the Home Office correspondence regarding Leytonstone Girls Reformatory School in Essex provides a useful case study. In 1894, the school was the subject of an inquiry following allegations by the London School Board of undue punishment, unkind treatment and the withholding of girls' wages earned on licence. It is because of this inquiry that we have detailed records about a number of girls at the school and the process of licensing out. Leytonstone, also known as the Good Shepherd Children's Home, was a school for girls aged 13 or under who were the children of prostitutes or who had been prostitutes themselves. These were girls like Flora, who we encountered in the Metropolitan Police Files. Fallen girls, as they were called, were a particularly sensitive group for industrial and reformatory schools, and many institutions refused to take them for fear that they would corrupt younger or more innocent girls. Allegations against the school were made following the attempted suicide of a pupil who was out on licence, named Catherine Maud Dunn. Catherine was detained aged 13 when she was found wandering without parental control. Her mother was found to be leading what is euphemistically described as a doubtful life, and her stepsister was said to be a prostitute who exerted a bad influence on Catherine. Just under a year after Catherine was sent to Leytonstone, she was licensed out as a domestic servant to a Mrs Fletcher of Balham, where she remained for seven months. In June 1894, she was absent without leave for a day and was subsequently arrested and charged with absconding. Following further detention in the reformatory, she was again licensed out, this time to a Mrs Rogers of Lee. After a month with Mrs Rogers, Catherine attempted to commit suicide by drinking carbolic acid, blaming her unhappiness on her mistress's ill-treatment. It was after this incident that the London School Board demanded an inquiry into the home. The School Board's inquiry heard that Catherine had not been able to afford to write to complain about her mistress because all of her wages were sent back to the school. Ordinarily, pupils would receive the wages they earned while out on licence, but Miss Cotton, the school's founder, was alleged to have taken all of Catherine's wages. Further evidence emerged that girls had their hair cropped short and the school's names stamped in the clothing they were given while out on licence. Measures which marked them out as reformatory cases and prompted the school board to protest that no girl can possibly make her way in life or be contented with her position under the conditions you have been applying to girls leaving your school. In the ensuing correspondence, Miss Cotton describes Catherine as a desperate bad girl who had absconded from the school, a charge which Catherine admits but blames on mistreatment, claiming that Miss Cotton had hit her with a book and threatened to publicly birch her. Other former pupils came forward claiming they too had been publicly flogged. Despite the allegations against the school, the Home Office inquiry exonerates Miss Cotton, whom they describe as a lady who has led a life of benevolence. The report suggests that the London School Board overreacted and relied too much on the unreliable testimony of girls who were untrustworthy and of questionable morals. Allegations regarding the retention of wages were proved to be unfounded. The girls received pocket money for necessary items and received the balance at the end of their licence, a measure taken to prevent them squandering their money as soon as they tasted freedom. Overall, the Home Office valued Miss Cotton's work too highly to act further acknowledging that she dealt with an exceptionally difficult class of girl. Of Catherine's suicide attempt, it was concluded, quote, The fact probably was that the girl was pining after the vicious freedom from which she had been rescued. 
The fear that industrial and reformatory school cases like Catherine would return to their old habits meant that the child's release into the world, or disposal, was carefully monitored. As these photos suggest, on discharge, pupils were provided with outfits suitable to the employment which they were going into. They were apprenticed or placed out where possible to an immediate position or into the armed forces. Where this wasn't possible, children were returned to their relatives or friends, or schools worked with charities to em emigrate pupils to the colonies. Girls had very little trouble finding work as domestic servants, but boys could encounter more difficulty. We're going to use the discharge registers for Stockport Industrial School in HO349 to look at the varying success of some of the former pupils. Following their release from an industrial school or reformatory, a former pupil's progress was regularly checked by local inspectors. While some reports can span a period of over 20 years, it is sad to note that the inspectors lost trace of many of their cases very quickly, and of those who are regularly seen, many go on to have problems with the police or go into relatively unskilled work. There was a widespread concern that those who were returned to their families were more likely to return to a life of crime, and the inspectors' reports often contain notes as to the home environment. Like many industrial school pupils, George Smith went into the military following his discharge in 1899. As we have seen, many industrial schools fostered their military training as a means of encouraging discipline, but the experience also provided a useful career path on release. George enlisted in the band of the 4th Sherwood Foresters Militia on his release, and the register includes this photograph of his unit. John Davis is a very different case, and represents children we haven't really considered yet, but who no doubt represented a significant number of those placed in industrial schools, those who might now be recognised as having particular educational needs. The discharge register notes that he is, quote, mentally weak and partially blind. The school's admission register states that John was admitted to Stockport in 1896, aged nine. He was detained as a truant, and the register notes that he had been sleeping out and was neglected. Sadly, he doesn't seem to have settled after discharge, and two years later, he is reported as tramping around the south of England, before dying in a workhouse infirmary in June 1905, um, aged just 18. William James Brown would have been a contemporary of John, but his story is very different, and is a more uplifting one to end on. William was nine, and living in West London, when he was sent to Stockport in 1896, charged with living in a house frequented by prostitutes. His case notes state that his father deserted 18 months previously, and his mother, a charwoman of loose character, kept a wretched house. Following his discharge from the industrial school in 1903, William joined the army as a band boy. He left after six months to live in London, and worked as a waiter, a chauffeur mechanic, and then as a photographer in a press agency, before immigrating to Canada in 1913, where he also found work as a photographer. What I like about this case is that most of the entries in the register come from letters that William has written into the school himself to tell them of his success. In 1914, he sent this photo and a long letter describing his life in Canada and his success as a photographer, writing that he has done, quote, wonderfully well while having some very exciting experiences, bearing in mind his difficult beginnings, who would deny him a little bragging. We have seen how sources held here can reveal much about all stages of a child's interaction with an industrial school or reformatory. The sources I have used, and which I recommend to anyone interested in industrial or reformatory schools, are these. For records relating to particular pupils and schools, I would concentrate on HO46 and HO137 in the first instance. 
The Home Office correspondence in HO45 and HO144 contain material on individual schools, and as we have seen, pupils can be mentioned, and sometimes in some detail. And the material in HO349 is a fantastic resource for, for finding out more about the pupils who were in these schools. If you're looking for a reformatory school child, then prison registers are also a useful source. Files in T1 and MEPO2 provide useful background information. You may not immediately think of using these series, and T1 is certainly not the easiest series to use, but it can be a real treasure trove if you have the patience. Many of the photographs I have used come from MH102, and this is certainly a useful resource for photos and for files on particular schools. And of course, you should always think about material held locally. The National Register of Archives on our website will help you identify where to find records of individual schools, school boards and magistrates' courts. Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.